Blog Talk Radio. Now we have everybody. Yes. Yay. Facebook realm, the Vibe Radio Network. We're live. We're live. We're tired. A little bit. But it was it's a big fire. It was it's a uh, fire for a good reason. We uh we uh, We just got back from scare. Here's that care. Number eight. Restaurant the race. He survived. Barely. But he survived. So yeah. We're getting signed in so we can chat with y'all. Maybe. Hopefully. Hopefully. We're running a little behind. We're sorry. We had to launch a tour. <laughs> we well, we launched a tour and we came Never back and dinner. made dinner and Oh yeah. Cheers. Yeah, cheers everybody. This evening is uh, strawberry maple bourbon cocktail. Right to the back of the We are quite tasty. Right to the back of the room. Clears it right out. So, but anyway, yeah, so we're here and, uh, yeah. So let's talk about scares while we're here. Yeah. So, um, we just got back this morning. Yeah. We, we, uh, the convention wrapped up yesterday afternoon, but we spent one more night to try and crash. And crash. Crash and recover, and with mixed success, we're still tired. It's about what pointed out. But we we had a wonderful weekend, and we can't wait to do it again. Yeah. So um, big weekend. There was ET weekend. So they had four of the stars from ET, including um, Henry and D and KC and look at my signature. That was right. Henry. Yep, I was right. It was Robert. Ah. And I was at TV. So, yeah, I got them all to sign the ET magazine. I'm very happy about that. Uh, we also um, got to see uh, Danny from um, Tiny. Yep. And really nice guy. Yeah, really, really nice guy. I got his oh, they're, they're, all, they're all really nice. So, Chris and I have actually started a book. Lovely book that I picked up, and we're getting as many signatures as possible in here, and eventually we're going to actually uh, donate this process. We got this signature in here. Um, we got um, Harvey's signature from um, the Omen in here. Uh, so, yeah, that was really cool. And, of course, I got uh, Barbara Hershey, my uh, beaches, um, but she has been in so many things, and she was absolutely and then Chris found our star. Now, we did not meet her in person. No, she was not there, but um, one of the vendors had her, and it is signed, and I am ecstatic to own it. Because she is one of my favorite, favorite icons from growing up. I looked up to this woman. I wanted to be her every Halloween. So we will be finding Miss Elvira here, a uh, lovely uh, frame, and then not too distant. Yes. But, yes, it was a Until then, she's right there in all of her glory. Fantastic weekend, though. Um, if you've never done Scares of Care, follow them on Facebook for a start. See what they got going on because they don't just do these charity weekends. Yeah, they're actually going to be at um, Preacher Feature up in Gettysburg at the end of this month. Yep, so uh, they, uh, they're one of the main beneficiaries of that event. Yep. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's going to be it's maybe good, great stuff all year round, and, of course, it's all um, in a of a great cause fighting the real monsters of childhood disease, breast cancer, and um, individuals who are unfortunately you know, suffering from a 
suspects of having been burned, been severely burned. So, yeah, we're uh, we're very very happy to be able to uh, support them. And uh, and as yeah. you know, the horror movies one isn't what you're saying. They do have um, Omicron in April, um, so they will have to be having that as well. So, you know, reading more yourself for the best. Maybe that's a way to get your feet um, tapped into that. But we will actually be having a tour that benefits Scares the Care of the October 22nd. It's our Churchill Tours tour at 9 o'clock that night. Um, myself and Marshall will be the guys who uh, both of us both always have Scares the Care convention and both love supporting these groups. So if you want to kind of come and join us, and talk, uh, join us and talk to the state rep, uh, Trisha Monster, who will be there, um, that's a good way to get started, too. Thank you. Yep. People checking in, saying hello. So hello, hello, everybody. And we do have the cast around. This has been playing by TV from Daddy at Toy. Today, by the way, is Nico and Mrs. Gatry Day. We have officially adopted them a year ago. They've been living with us a little longer than that, but, um, yeah, we officially adopted them a year ago. Oh, now you don't want to take them. But, yeah, so, uh, yeah, it was a, a fantastic weekend. Strongly recommend you check it out. Um, and uh, we're looking forward to being able to... Uh, the costume contest this year was amazing. The costume contest this year was over the top. Oh, my God. We yeah. had two Eddies. We had two Eddies. Eddies from oh, Stranger Things. And they were both Eddie. fantastic. <laughs> they were um, both fantastic. They were. Uh, oh, and, uh, yeah, I ran the 5K and I got the awesome shirt. Um, but yeah, so lots of fun. Uh, Voltaire performs. Um, uh, the other one, the the whip in the Carnival. Um, they performed. We unfortunately did not get a chance to go, but Marsha did, and she really, really loved them. Yeah, okay. Um, we're staying home this month. That's her breath. Yeah, July well, was very busy. Oh, we got somebody from Iowa watching. Oh, wait. Yep. Cool. So. All right, so let's uh, dive into what you guys actually came here for, which is uh, Gary Pop Culture Inspirations Part 2. So, if you've been watching us for a while, the first fun that we did was November of 2020. So, it's been a hot minute since we've done this topic, but I uh, had a lot of fun with it last time, and we are excited yes. to be doing it again. So, yeah. Four stories tonight? We have four stories. Because two of them are kind of long. Yeah. So, yep. A couple of the major class ones. Yeah. Are, yeah. So, yeah. Lots of people. Okay. All right. So, it's been 88 weeks. He counted, not me. As <laughs> <laughs> we chatted up this topic of scary about culture inspiration. Last time we brought you the Blood Countess Elizabeth Bathory the true story behind The Exorcist, the real-life haunting of Hill House, and so much more. So, that was just the beginning. Tonight, we have several more tales, including some of the biggest and most recognizable names in horror. So buckle up as we pull back the curtain of some of these most truly real-life inspirations behind your favorite works of fiction. So we're going to start with the tale of Edward Mordrake. For those of you that are not familiar with this, we're talking about tomorrow. Personality. Uh, this is one of the most popular tools in science fiction and horror, but sometimes it takes a step further. So 
Whereas multiple personalities are generally portrayed as different compartments in a single mind that takes turns in the driver's seat. Sometimes those portrayals show two personalities actively arguing and vying for the control of the same body. And sometimes this two-stage personality literally has two stages. We're talking Voldemort folks and the inspiration for Voldemort. In the Sorcerer's Stone, the very first, which we got more on that. <laughs> I'm sorry, dude, this cocktail is not for you. He's asking to get shot right now. He think he's been in a shot. All right, so December 8th of 1895, the Boston Sunday Post published a story featuring an Englishman by the name of Edward Mordray. Edward was said to live a tortured life, as he was constantly in the company of a second individual in the form of a female face on the back of his head. The face was reportedly as lovely as a dream and hideous as a devil. They would whisper to Edward in the quiet hours of the night, saying such things as they only saw. The abuse that Mordrake suffered at the words of this face would leave him in tears, leaving the face to smear at his After years of begging doctors to remove the torturous anomaly, Mordrake ultimately took his own life at the age of 23. His suicide note begged for the faith to be destroyed, lest it continues its dreadful whispering in my grave. You know, we don't like that. Somebody has been using me. He has been in my lap all day today. Mordred's personal horror was popularized by George Good and Wilson Child in 1896 Science Textbook. The only problem is, is that the original story put forth by the Boston Sunday Post was a complete work of fiction. While craniofacial duplication is a real biological phenomenon, those born with an extra face rarely live long, and none of the duplicative faces are, are capable of independent speech, as there's only one brain. It was only in 2015 that the Museum of Coasts uncovered the original Boston Sunday Post article about Mordrake was actually written by a science fiction author, Charles Pilgrim, and was otherwise utterly faithful. Pilgrim's article was written in an entirely factual manner, including citations, making it somewhat understandable that some would take it at face value. Unfortunately, those citations were also fictional. Most, uh, most notably, the Royal Scientific Society, which didn't even exist. When writing their textbooks, Gold and Pyle apparently couldn't be bothered with verifying the sources cited in the article and making sure that they were legit. They didn't have citations no. Anyway, nonetheless, the myth of Edward Mornrank has endured and even thrived. Depictions of people with two conflicting faces have been featured time and again in popular culture over the years. But some half a century after the Mornrank article was published, one of the earliest pop culture depictions of a man with conflicting faces on one head may have been in the Texas comic issue 66 of August 1942. This is where one of Batman's arch nemesis was first introduced, the notorious Two-Face. While Two-Face's origin story differs significantly from Edward, it is not a far leap to draw lines 
between the two characters. Two-Face, a.k.a. Harvey Dent, was a heroic justice-seeking district attorney who was horribly disfigured in an acid attack. While his disfigured facade drove him mad and turned it into a life of crime and violence, one could argue that there was still a small piece of justice-seeking the man left inside. As if Two-Face faced less the decision about whether to commit a crime or not a scarred two-headed coin. It also be said that other crime lords and villains have also faced this proportionate portion of Two-Face's wrath. What remained of Harvey Dent was almost always in conflict with the disfigured part of his face that was thrust upon him. Over time, several more more graces like since have depicted on paper and in cinema. Of course, like we said, one of the many people that would be familiar with this dates back to the 1990s when Harry Potter came known all over the world. In the first year of Hogwarts, uh, uh, Harry Potter and Phil Stone, we are introduced to Professor Quirrell. So a horrifying turn at the end of the story to reveal the host being the parasite, Voldemort, on the back of the head. More recent years, the followers of the television show American Horror Story returning to a direct interpretation of Edward and himself in the freak show season. The version of Mordek was a spirit very much at odds with himself. While the face on the back of the head was vicious, his own consciousness expressed regret at what the second face compelled him to do. Much like the original story, this Mordek eventually killed himself. The spirit endured and was the second face compelling hunting sideshow performers in the afterlife. One of the most recent Mordrake inspired works was just released in 2021. Malignant uh, revolves around a woman who is tormented by violent visions, only to find out visions are horribly, horrifyingly closer to reality than she knows. Since it is such a recent release, we won't dive into it too much further because we don't like the spoilers. Um, but as far as gory horror movies go, it's highly recommended to the fans of the genre. The line from Mordrake to Malignant is very direct indeed. While the original Mordrake story was from fabrication, it was based off a very real condition with chilling effectiveness. It's an excellent example of how an urban legend can quickly take hold and reverberate throughout the popular consciousness for generations. That movie, uh, Malignant, I watched it. I did not. Yes. I have a tendency to uh, be a little bit of a night owl. I'll stay up late. I will watch stuff that isn't necessarily always keen on. I like psychological thrillers, not necessarily the gore. If you watch the gore while I asleep. There was quite a bit of gore in the Anyway, yeah, recommend to check it out. Um, if you can find it, when I watched it, it was streaming on HBO Max, but I don't think it's there anymore. But, uh, yeah, anyway, most recent interpretation, very direct uh, line from the Mordrake. Now, from there, we are going to go to one of the even bigger names in, uh, in horror. Perhaps there could definitely be a very, very in-depth argument as to whether this will be the biggest one we discussed tonight. We have two really big ones. But this will be the first one, too. And this one starts uh, in, uh, the, in real life. It starts in 1958 in the town of Seaford, Long Island where the Herman family was living a typical life. The family of four consists of parents James, and Luke, parents James and Lucille and their two children, Lucille, age 13, and James, age 12. 
Their white and green ranch style home at 1648 Redwood Path was built in 1953 and contains three bedrooms, a bathroom, a kitchen, a small dining room, a living room, and a basement that was divided between a utility room and a playroom. In other words, it was a typical 1950s-era home in a quiet, conservative neighborhood with public parks and tree-lined streets. It was the last place that you would expect anything out of the ordinary to occur. However, on the afternoon of Monday, February 3rd, 1958, things were proceeding as they did on any normal day, at least until they no longer worked. It was clear and cold outside, and Lucille Herman, a registered nurse who there to welcome her children home from school and to prepare dinner. The children, Lucille and Jimmy, were two ordinary kids with ordinary interests. Soon after the children entered the kitchen, chaos erupted in the house. In a matter of moments, various bottles containing liquid in different rooms of the house suddenly began to pop their caps and dance around. No one saw the bottles move or explode, but all of them heard the caps as they popped loose and the bottle contents were spewing into the air. They would later discover an open bottle of bleach in the basement utility room, a bottle of stuck liquid starch in the kitchen, bottles of shampoo and medicine in the bathroom, and a bottle of holy water had opened in the master bedroom and was lying on its side with its contents filled. Each of the bottles had been sealed with a soft metal or plastic cap. There were no corks or crimped caps that might have somehow popped loose. Puzzled, Mrs. Herman called her husband, who worked for Air France in New York City, and reported the strange popping sounds they had heard. Herman was just as confused by the incident as his wife was, but since no one had been hurt, he decided there was no need for him to go home early. Following his usual schedule, James Herman took the train to Long Island and arrived home just before 7 p.m. During his commute, he pondered his wife's call and was sure that it, he, there must be a solution to the mystery. He believed that some sort of chemical reaction in the product had caused the bottle lids to blow, and the fact that they did so at the same time was merely a coincidence. Perhaps it had been caused by some sort of excessive humidity in the house. He quickly investigated the bottles when he arrived home and confessed to being baffled when he found that they were screwed out lids. How could they have simply popped off? That's partial will do it. Yeah. But with no ready answers and no further activity over the next couple of days, the bizarre incident started to fade from the family's thoughts. It was starting to be written off as just one of those things. But then on Thursday, February 6th, when the kids arrived home from school, another half dozen bottles popped the lid. A bottle of nail polish, a bottle of rubbing alcohol, a bottle of bleach, detergent, and a bottle of holy water on Mrs. Herman's dresser. An encore performance of the events just a few days prior. On Friday night, it happened again. Only this time when the bottles began to pop open, James Herman began to suspect he knew the culprit responsible for the multiple containers' strange behavior. He surmised that his science-loving son had somehow rigged the bottles to pop in order to scare his family. He thought that perhaps his son had planted some carbonated capsules inside the bottles with dramatic effects. Herman spent the entire weekend secretly observing Jimmy, determined to catch him in the act of tampering with the bottles. Much to James' surprise, on Sunday morning, February 9th, several caps popped off bottles of starch, turpentine, and holy water, sitting in containers rocking back and forth on the shelves. James had kept a close eye on Jimmy and was feeling baffled and a bit angry. How did this son pull it off? James burst into the bathroom where Jimmy was brushing his teeth and accused him of bringing the bottles to pop. Jimmy vigorously protested his innocence and added to prove the point, James would start to see a bottle of medicine suddenly move across the top of the sink and fall into the basin. A moment later, a bottle of shampoo also 
James immediately examined the bathroom, searching for hidden wires or strings. He found nothing and finally had to admit that there were things going on in the house that he could not explain. Unsure of what else to do, he called the Nassau County Police Department and spent the next several minutes on the phone trying to get Lieutenant Richardson, the deaf officer who answered the call, taken seriously. When he heard the story, Richardson accused James of either playing a practical joke or drinking too much. But he was soon swayed by the earnest tone of the man's voice. It helped that James had a good reputation in the community. Richardson promised to send someone to investigate. The ensuing investigation and reports would capture the attention of the country as Popper the Poltergeist became a subject of fascination, gossip, and skepticism. It would also come to serve as the inspiration for one of the most notable horror stories of all time, Poltergeist, which hit the silver screen on June 4th of 19, 1982. Poltergeist tells the story of a California family whose home is invaded by ghosts that eventually abducts their daughter into a paranormal realm. Now, back to Long Island, the first official police report came when Lieutenant Richardson dispatched Officer James Hughes to the house. Officer Hughes was feeling skeptical and was left wondering how he managed to wind up with the nutcase call. Within a few minutes, though, he had changed his mind about the nature of the case when several bottles in the bathroom popped their lid and fired them in his direction. He quickly concluded that the Hermans did indeed need help of the sort that he could not offer himself. Detective Joseph Tazi was assigned to look into the case. He read Hughes' report of the incident in the bathroom of interest. While not willing to pass judgment without actually visiting the scene, he was relatively sure the Hermans were experiencing some natural phenomena or were simply imagining them. Or, he noted with the cynicism of a veteran police officer, the popping bottles could be getting some help from a human source. On February 11th, Detective Tazi began his vigil at the Herman House. That same evening, a perfume atomizer overturned and spilled perfume in the daughter's bedroom. There was no one in the room at the time, according to reports. Over the next few days, the disturbances seemed to center around the bottle of holy water in the parents' bedroom. On several occasions, the lid of the bottle popped off, and, and once, after hearing the distinctive sound, Mr. Herman dashed into the room and found the bottle on the floor. He picked it up and found it strangely warm to the touch. Later that day, on February 15th, uh, the activity took another turn as the Herman children were watching television in the living room with Marie Murtha, their middle-aged second cousin. A porcelain figurine on an end table next to the couch began to wiggle and then shot two feet through the air, making a loud crashing sound as it landed on the floor. To the amazement of Miss Murtha and the children, the figurine was unbroken. After this last demonstration, the Hermans decided to turn to another source for comfort and to aid stump detective Tavi in his investigation. They contacted Father William McLeod of the Church of St. William the Abbot for help. As devout Catholics, the Hermans believed that the church would help them where ordinary methods had failed. Father McLeod came to the house and sprinkled holy water in each of the rooms. Unfortunately, Father the Poltergeist had decided that he didn't want to leave. During the next two weeks, since Bopper had made, made his first appearance in the Herman House, news of the strange happenings had leaked to the media. Story received a great deal of publicity, even meriting articles in Time and Life magazines. If the beleaguered family thought that mopping up still liquids and having their possessions broken by an unseen force was bad, then the onslaught of public attention was worse. 
During the day, the Herman home was surrounded by reporters, photographers, curiosity seekers, and an astounding array of television equipment. Well, the Hermans managed to get used to these intrusions into their lives, they weren't quite prepared for some of the strangeness that came with it. Letters and telephone calls came every day. Many of them proposed logical solutions, while others assured the Hermans that Martians had landed nearby or that the problem in the house was the spirit of a long-dead Indian chief or that the Russians were tunneling under Long Island to invade New York. The Hermans managed to stay patient with everyone, though. They never turned away anyone, and they listened attentively to all the calls and suggestions that came in. Even those that shouted, repent, into the telephone at midnight or proclaimed that the Sputniks are here. Many of the letters and visitors were less easy to tolerate, however. Letters arrived in barely an intelligible scrawl, condemning their hermits for their sins and suggesting that they had invited these tricks of Satan. Ministers from all sorts of dubious faiths conducted rituals on the front lawn of the house. But not all of the suggestions and attempts to help were so bizarre. One man who came to the house, Robert Zither, was a physicist from Long Island's Brookhaven National Laboratory. He brought a set of dousing rods with him and went over the property with them. When he was finished, he stated that he believed that there were underground streams below the house. He thought that the water might be creating a freak magnetic field. Detective Tazi examined this idea at length, but a geological survey suggested that the information was inaccurate. Tazi's case file grew thicker and thicker with notes, observations, and research. At one point, he had been walking down the basement stairs with Jimmy Herman when a bronze statue of a horse weighing nearly 100 pounds flew across the basement and hit the detective in the leg. Jimmy had been nowhere near the statue, and no one else was down there. Ozzy had absolutely no idea how it was possible. He had checked with the Air Force, and after studying their flight plans, they had told him that sonic boons from passing jets could not have caused the disturbances. He also ruled out radio waves by contacting the Radio Corporation of America. The Long Island Lighting Company had set up a delicate oscilloscope in the basement, but they had detected no underground vibration. Building inspectors from the town of Hempstead pronounced the house structurally sound. Keeper Fire Department even inspected a well on the property to see if changes in the water level could be causing the disturbances. However, they found that the water level had been stable for at least five years. Although puzzled, Tavi remained determined, and he tried valiantly to discover a source for the happening. He finally found hope in a letter from a woman named Ellen Connolly of Rear, Massachusetts. She wrote that she had experienced odd events in her living room where chairs and furniture moved about. She didn't have a ghost in her house, but rather a very heavy downdraft through her fireplace. When capped with a rotary metal turbine, flying tables and chairs seemed fly. Mr. Herman immediately had one installed on his own chimney, convinced that the strangeness was finally coming to an end. But that wasn't meant to be. No sooner had the workman completed the installation than a personal figurine launched itself on the table and smashed against the desk. The figurine had managed to travel a distance of more than 12 feet. It left a dent on the wood that was broadcast television television audiences all over the New York metropolitan area. On February 20th, events became even more violent. Another figurine was smashed against the desk. A bottle of ink popped its screw cap and then sailed into the air and splashed its contents on the wall and a sugar bowl flew off the table under the watch of Detective Tazi. They were close to Jimmy, but not within his reach. Needing a break, the Herman family spent the night with a relative. 
Tyler stayed in the house, but the rest of the night passed without incident. When the family returned the next evening, though, the sugar bowl again flew from the table, and this time it shattered into pieces. On February 24th, Ozzy was startled to his feet by the sound of a large noise from Jimmy's room. No one had been in the room or near it. He had a large bookcase and managed to fall face down onto the floor. The next night, while Jimmy was in the room doing his homework, his record player lifted and moved 15 feet across the room. A small statue of the Virgin Mary flew more than 12 feet and struck a mirror frame in the master bedroom. A book crate filled with encyclopedias was upended. A heavy glass centerpiece from the dining room table flew up and struck a cupboard, chipping away a piece of molding before falling to the floor. A world globe shot down the hallway from Jimmy's room and just missed Detective Tazi. A newspaper photographer named John Gold from the London Evening News witnessed his flashball lift off a table and fly through the air to strike a wall. In addition, Popper had begun knocking on the walls as if, as if trying to get more attention. Ozzy had become concerned about the new violence band of destruction. Until that point, the activity had been limited to popping bottle tops. He'd explored every possible explanation that he could come up with, and while he was not prepared to say the house was haunted, he was all out of fresh ideas. About this time, the staff of scientists at the Parapsychology Laboratory at Duke University in North Carolina became interested in the events reported in the Herman home. This group of researchers, under the leadership of Dr. J.B. Durine, had already compiled a mass of evidence that supported the idea that certain people, under the right circumstances, could influence the behavior of objects without touching them. They called it psychokinesis, or PK. As the disturbances of the home continued, Dr. Ryan's assistant, Dr. Pratt, traveled to New York and arrived at the Herman House on February 26th. Dr. Pratt believed that someone in the house was unknowingly causing the strange incident to occur. Meanwhile, other researchers came to believe that the incidents in the house were being caused by an actual ghost, a poltergeist, or noisy spirit. These pranks or ghosts are traditionally targeting religious items as the disturbances had done with the holy water and the Virgin Mary statue in the Herman house. On the other hand, strong evidence remains to the idea that there was a human component behind the haunting. Mm-hmm. It had been noted by researchers that an adolescent child, usually a girl, was almost always among the members of the household being plagued by poltergeist phenomena. They believed it was possible that this young person might be capable of psychokinesis during the height of puberty. In every case, though, the young person might be unaware that she or he was unconsciously causing the events to happen, making them as bewildered as the adults around them. In the case of the Herman House, Jimmy, according to Detective Tazi's notes, was at or near the scene of the poltergeist disturbances more than 75% of the time. For many incidents, he was full witness. However, the detective had cleared the boy of deliberately causing any of the disturbances. Okay. Um, so Amy said it's always... Mm-hmm. Now, like others who came before him, Dr. Pratt was welcomed into the Herman residence and warmed, greatly warmed. Greeted warmly back. He explains that he had come as an observer and spent most of his time there chatting with Jimmy, playing cards with him, helping him with his homework, and generally just being around with the young man. There was no sign of strangeness during the visit. Hopper was absolutely quiet. Pratt then summoned another colleague from North Carolina, William Jean Roll. Together, they interviewed the family members and were convinced that none of them were perpetrating a hoax. Family was much too shaken for it to be a colossal hoax. Pratt told a United Press reporter. 
things were quiet for the next several days, as though the poltergeist did not want to perform to the scientists. Then on March 2nd, one month after Popper first arrived, he decided to make himself known again. All the Hermans were in the house to witness what took place. First, a dish bolted from a kitchen cabinet and shattered on the floor. Then a night table flipped over in Jimmy's room. Popper was back, and yet there was still no explanation as to who or what he was. Two days later, a bowl of flowers slid down the dining room table and jumped into the air. The bookcase turned end over end in the cellar. But this would not be Popper's farewell performance. That event would occur on March 10th when Mrs. Herman, Jimmy, and Lucille were getting ready for bed. Jane Herman was away on business. Dr. Pratt and Rolf suddenly heard a loud popping sound in the cellar, and they hurried downstairs to see what it was. They found that a bleach bottle sitting in a cardboard box had somehow lost its plastic lid. For reasons unknown, this became the last act of the Herman family poltergeist. There had been a record of 67 recorded disturbances between February 3rd and March 10th. The Hermans had been visited by detectives, building inspectors, electricians, plumbers, firemen, and parapsychologists, yet none of them had been able to present a satisfactory explanation for what had occurred in the home. Weeks after the household returned to normal, experts still came to investigate and to theorize about what had taken place. As late as August 1958, scientists at Duke still had no clue as to what had happened and why. By this time, the Hermans had had enough of investigation and just wanted their lives to get back to normal. What did happen at the Herman house on Long Island? No one really knows. However, the poltergeist is just puzzling today as he was in 1958. Well, the mystery remained, Hollywood took a turn at interpreting the event into something that fit for the silver screen 24 years later loosely based on the Herman experiences and revolving around the family's own theory that the events were related to an ancient Native American burial site, Poltergeist took the public on a terrifying ride. As chilling as the on-screen story was, the movie remained infamous for its behind-the-scenes incidents as well. Within six years of the movie being filmed, the two young actresses who betrayed the sisters tra- died tragically. Dominique Dune was murdered by her boyfriend, while Heather O'Rourke was famous lines they're here, announced the coming of the ghost, died of congenital intestinal issues at just 12 years old. After Julian Beck, 60, who portrayed preacher Henry Kane in Poltergeist 2, the other side, died of stomach cancer before the film could be released, and Will Sampson, who took the role of a Native American shaman, died after undergoing a heart lung transplant the following year. Author James Kahn, who wrote a book to accompany the film, said that seconds after he wrote the line, Lightning Rips Open the Sky, his work building was struck by lightning, and all the arcade games in the lounge room began to play themselves. While separated from the real life events on Long Island, the tragedies that took place amid the dramatization on the big screen left many convinced that Poltergeist was a terrifyingly crisp production event. Yes, I have. I will get into that. And now, the event that you most, many of you have been waiting for. Were there any questions? Or? Nope, just psychotology. Added a few times. Okay. But it's not so easy to type on my phone while I'm on camera. I need to work. All right, so the nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, as we may have mentioned before, there's a connection here to the family. Um, 
West Craven product. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that was back in the late 1960s. He was a humanities professor at Clarkson University. And the boiler room is located on the Just the all know that. <laughs> oh, so Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, of course, this uh, was produced in 1984, but from 1975 to 1979, Southeast Asia was one of the last places on earth he wanted to be, especially in Cam- Cambodia, where the Khmer Rouge was arrested and executed anyone associated with the government foreigners. In Laos, civil war raged with civilians frequently caught in the crossfire. Those who could flee did, and thousands of refugees found their way to the United for one Cambodian family that was successfully had made it to the U.S., they were still not free of the horror that was inflicted on The memories remained, and their son had already been a child. A child would stay awake for days for fear of something in his nightmares would chase him and eventually kill him. He finally fell asleep one night, but would cry out in the middle of the night one last time. By the time his family got to him, the experience is placed within a wider phenomenon occurring throughout Southeast Asian communities. Phenomenon that has actually been established in the medical world. It's called sudden arrhythmic death syndrome. Most common among young men who are seemingly healthy, they would simply cry out in the middle of the night randomly and then they would die. It was later discovered that this wasn't an unexplained phenomenon. They were suffering from undiscovered medical problems, including a slightly large heart and other defects. This rare syndrome was first noted on the Nahomon refugees to the U.S. and Canada from Laos in 1977. What's really interesting is though it's, it's what's really interesting though isn't the medical proof that you can indeed die in a nightmare, paranormal link, as of acronym. Medical journals have already outlined in the, the link between the victim of this syndrome and their cultural beliefs in the spiritual world. This was first suggested in regards to the Hmong population has cultural beliefs about nocturnal hunting spirits. In the people, a spirit which takes the form of a dull woman sits on one's chest and suffocates you in the middle of the night. In the 1970s and 80s, the Hmong believed uh, beliefs evolved to take on account of the political context. Many were unable to worship properly, and as a result of the guerrilla warfare and of the law of government, by failing to worship properly whenever they were incorrectly or failing to carry out sacrifices, the ancestor or village spirits would not protect them from the jealous women's pressing attacks. By the early 80s, dozens of Southeast Asians living as refugees America were dying in their sleep, leaving already traumatized families completely devastated. This terrifying series of real-life events caught the attention of writer-director Wes Craven. The inexplicable nature of the death left, left a lot of room for interpretation, and Craven's mind drifted into the creation that is still with us today, The Nightmare on Elm Street and its nightmarish antagonist, Freddy Krueger. Missing the individuals in their minds with vulnerable moments or involves their dreams. Freddie dispatches his victims time and again on screen 
the scientific horror of audiences for the first time in 1984. A nightmare on Elm Street is regarded by many to be the foundation for the slasher film genre that remains so popular today. For the last several decades, Freddy has developed into the deepest resources of our imagination again, a simple yet traumatizing premise. Teenagers have nightmares of mysterious and yet grotesque figures that attempt to kill them and sometimes succeed. They die in the dream. They die in real life. With every iteration, whether it is film or one TV, we discover more and more about Freddy Krueger and his past and explore the possibilities of the dream world in which he operates. Along the way, this monster helped make West Craven a household name, some untold millions of dollars also. And he would assuredly continue to haunt the dream of horror affectionados for years. It's worth noting that while a nightmare on Elm Street was inspired by the misfortune of the Southeast Asian refugees in the late 70s and early 80s, there have been similar links to supernatural and dream monsters Without summarizing the entirety of human history, it's safe to say that before science could explain the physical and psychological nature of natural phenomenon, God, spirits, and demons were used of the ailments that befell many people. Before we knew what sleep paralysis was, we assumed it on the paranormal. Even the term nightmare can be traced back to mare, a Norse spirit that would crush people's chests in the dead of night called traumatic nightmares for the victim. According to a folklore, Mare was believed to ride horses, leaving them exhausted and covered in sweat, a symptom associated with night terrors and nightmares. That was a bit confusing because the mare is not the horse. The mare is the spirit actually riding the horse, whereas we call female horses mares. So, yeah, that took me a few reading through that paragraph multiple times to figure out what was going on there. <laughs> now, the mare would also tangle their hair, which is another symptom of thrashing around in one's feet. Mares also associated with witches, which when they would take the, on the form of animals, their spirits would effectively leave their bodies, enter the animals, and they, of course, would possess them. They'd leave them in a trance. Scandinavia, Germany, Poland are the most popular champions of mares and have their own place on this typical doubled creature. In fact, some of them bear similarities to our own Freddy Krueger. And the mares aren't alone. On the island of Fiji, the natives believe that the spirit of a recently deceased relative can take the form of a demon who returns to their living relative to impart important information or complete unfinished business. The demon will eat sleeping person, making them talk in their sleep. If waking you from this horror, those nearby will say, kina kina, or eat, eat, in order to prolong the possession. It will give the relatives a chance to talk to their deceased relative and explain why they have the chance. When the person being eaten awakens, they should curse or chase away the spirit to end the terrible appearance. Simply tell them to go away, and you'll be free from their midnight Thailand's also home to demons seeking a peace of the dead in the night. Sleep paralysis in this part of Asia is caused by the ghost seeing ants. The spirit is known to cause bruising, a telltale symptom of a violent spirit or a demonic attack. An ants sits on your chest while you are asleep and causes 
often causes troubled nightmares and unpleasant states. Some even claim that the thing can kill you in this state. Pakistani attributes their sleep paralysis monsters to one of three things, even a state. These creatures are called by black magic and that is performed by enemies of those who are jealous and wish to cause harm to the victim. Protect against this, Pakistani culture dictates several measures for defending against evil supernatural beings. This includes wearing a talus, an amulet to war off the evil eyes, forming exorcism, and a blessing of haunted houses with specific Muslim There's no specific old night sitting on the chest of the innocents of Pakistan. Instead, any old negative spirit or entity will be Finally, out of all cultural groups, Egyptians are probably the most terrified of state paralysis. A huge number of studies and investigations have even attempted to explain the high incidence of such troubled sleep in Egyptian culture. Here, the monster is one of two creatures, an evil African queen who might be Lilith, or a female, uh, excuse me, a female demon belonging to the Jewish mythology, or it's a jinn, an evil jinn typically bears the blame for sleep paralysis as a result of the strong religious traditions that are still present. According to the Islamic mythology, her genie, this is not the only time they have been blamed for bad nights. This is just sampling of sleep paralysis monsters. There are many more examples of cultures around the world. While considered to release the fictional interpretations of these words, Freddy Krueger may be one day considered America's case on the monsters that visit. Did you kill my daddy? No. Nope. I'm distracting most of my kids. I need to put her mm-hmm. So, as I said, we have four for you tonight, which means that we're about to dive into our little last ones of the season. <laughs> this one's a, a little shorter, but it's uh, no less fascinating, although um, the... Uh, does not quite have the uh, um, the pop culture reference. Doesn't quite have the same power of say Poltergeist or uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. But all the same, very interesting. So we are going to start in Toronto, Canada, uh, which will become the site of a very unusual experiment back in 1972. Yes, Nico adorable. Apparently, Nico does not like the things that the society. So, Toronto, 1972, a parapsychology research society led by poltergeist researcher Dr. George Owen set out to see if a ghost could be coaxed into existence using only the power of the human mind. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Don't do it. Getting ahead of things here. I know you don't approve. It's, it's, it's okay. Another turn. So, anyway, now this team consists of a variety of talented individuals, including a former chairperson of Mensa. Yes, that's Mensa, the IQ society, where only like the top two percent of people with IQs can actually get in. So, yeah. We're never going to join. Yeah, yeah. Neither are you, sir. Now, this wasn't another attempt at harnessing psychokinetic powers in an individual. Rather, they were actually attempting to bring forth an independent entity based on willpower alone. 
the entire effort was overseen by psychologist Dr. Joel Whitman. The group decided to try to summon Philip, a fictional character whose life would have consisted, uh, coincided rather, with actual events. The group wrote a narrative for Philip Aylesburn, which placed him in England in the 1500s. He was involved in the English Civil War. His friend, he was friends with King Charles II, who was a spy, and was burdened by an unhappy marriage to a woman named Sophia. Despite his powerful connections, Philip's love life would be his undoing. Philip fell in love with a Romani girl, but Dorothea sought revenge by accusing the Romani girl of witchcraft and having her burned at stake. Shortly thereafter, Philip took his own life out of despair for his lost love. Again, none of this was true, but it served the purposes of what would come to be known as the Philip experiment perfectly. Dr. Owen's group started by hosting seances to try and summon Philip was no success. But after tweaking some of the atmospheric properties, lowering the lights, making things a little creepier, things started to resemble more of a traditional seance, and things started to happen. The table would vibrate. Drafts would sweep across the room as though a window were open. And unexplained noises started to occur. Most notably, they seemed to be able to communicate with Philip by matching rapping sounds to the questions that were asked. It wasn't long. It wasn't long before Philip made his presence known in other ways, moving the table from side to side and at one point lifting it up off the ground. He would turn the lights on and the lights on and off in the room at the request of the group, and several members even reported hearing his voice when questions were asked of him. Philip was becoming more and more real with each session, and he was almost always able to answer questions pertaining to his life, which matched up with the biography that was written up prior to contact being made. These experiments were caught on audio and video, and numerous independent witnesses observed the happenings as well. Despite the evidence, the experiment has been largely dismissed by many due to the lack of experimental controls and the generally poor reputation of fans. The overseeing Dr. Witten concluded that the group had not managed to obtain their goal of summoning Philip. Rather, the evidence collected was the result of a subconscious defense mechanism generated by the experiment themselves. Fast forward to 2014, and the latest psychological horror film to hit the silver screen is The Quiet Ones, co-written and directed by John Pogue, who you may also know from his work including Ghost Ships back in 2002. Opening scene so freaking on that. <laughs> I like the stuff of my nightmares without water. <laughs> now, The Quiet Ones replaces Toronto, Canada with an estate on the outskirts of London, England, where Professor Chart Joseph Copeland gathers some of his top students to try and draw the darkness out of a deeply troubled girl named Jane who seems to have some telekinetic powers or is perhaps the victim of a demonic possession. Rather than follow the typical route of psychological counseling and medication or perhaps even an exorcism, the professor and his students attempt to summon the dark energy out of Jane into a physical manifestation that can be captured. Think exorcist meets ghostbusters. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, maybe something like that. But 
In any case, in typical horror movie fashion, things do go for their eyes. Despite the differences, the influence of the Philip experiment weighs heavy on the plot of the Philip experiment sought to prove that ghosts as we know them can be summoned from our own consciousness. And an experiment depicted in The Quiet Ones showed similar methods in trying to extract paranormal activity out of a girl's consciousness. While the real-life experiment never came to be violent or horrifying, that just doesn't make for the most thrilling and dramatic of films. So while The Quiet Ones may be based on a true story, it will be fair to say that artistic liberties were used to their full extent. Anyways, that was it for tonight, story-wise, at least. But, yeah, it has been a busy month. Um, We're looking forward to having a little bit more of a low-key month in in August here. But uh, still going to be very busy. We have tours running seven nights a week, and we thank our amazing guides over and over and over again for helping us do these tours every single day because there's no way that we could just do it. So um, So thank you for those of you who become adult in charge while we are off doing other events. Or even just taking it even for ourselves. Yes. We we greatly, greatly appreciate that. We do need that every now and then. (laughs) But, um, so yeah, our amazing guys, we greatly appreciate that. And, uh, yeah, we are going to be, um, even though it's going to be, as we say, a little bit more low-key in the weeks ahead, we still are going to be doing things. Again, tours are going. We have our um, next, um, our national, yep, our next and last John Marshall House tour for the summer is at the end of this month on, on yes, yep, August 26th. Um, after that, we don't do not know when the next one will be, but it's going to be uh, at least getting into the winter season. So it's going to be several months before, minimum, before we're able to do another one of those. It'll be post-October. Yep. Um, let's see. We also, as, as I mentioned before, we've got Scary Book Care Benefit Store. We're working on setting up another one for a different group. But we have, don't have a date yet, so I'm not going to announce it. Yep. But if you if you want to go ahead and sign up for the Scary Book Care Benefit Tour in October, you can actually go ahead. You can already find it. It's on the website. Just look, uh, you will find on October 22nd, the Churchill Chillers Tour, there will be a little sub-note on there that says Scares the Care Benefit Tour. And uh, 100% of the proceeds from that tour, your entire ticket price is going to go towards Scares the Care. So um, if you want to go ahead and sign up for that, you can uh, go ahead and do that now. The more people we get to sign up now, maybe we get to open up a second tour spot and actually do two tours for them now. We would love to be able to do Put them a uh, a nice fat check at the end of that evening. So um, let's see, Key West, you can still sign up for that. Clock um, ticking, though. Clock is ticking. You need to get that reservation. We we fly, or the event starts four months from tomorrow. Yep. So well, yeah. Now Friday, December second, that is when things kick off. Uh, arriving down there in Key West. So four months from tomorrow, it will be here before you know it. If you're interested in joining us. Now is the time to go and sign up, and yeah, oh, we'll be doing another. We'll be doing another market uh, down at the Flower Cheetah towards the end of this month too. So uh, definitely can, text Chris out there. The hot story is going to be available. Yep. Um, I got some more stuff, some more fun areas that I'll be pushed here that uh, Chris will have available. Yep. And Rachel, okay. all kinds of good stuff. Yep. 
No, they do not like costumes. They've uh, we've tried that. It does not go well. Not go well at all. <laughs> you know, last week one minute, five minutes with the camera. I think because she forgot that it was there for a few moments. Hi, Louie. Are you going to say hi? I'm going to look you up and say hi, and you're going to hate it. We're done. Hey, anything else? Anything else I'm forgetting? Uh, well, if you want a fun fact, the Duffer Brothers actually went to Hillsville, Virginia, one of the days when the debris was falling from the air from the industrious side of things, and they said this was the upside down. And actually, that was one thing that I didn't consider. Not that completely different tangent. Um, Stranger Things, you could also tie into being kind of inspired by poltergeist type stuff. Oh, poltergeist, there's, I mean, there's so many. The, 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 um. Technos related to Freddy. Yeah, yeah, but teenage, um, you know, teenage girl and puberty with PK powers. L. L. Yeah, so. Vecna invading your dreams, and there's Freddy. Um. Yeah. I mean, the, the pink dress in season one was inspired by what E.T. wears. So, I mean, there's so many references. Yeah, but lots of good stuff going on. The fact yeah. that Steve knows he's in a horror movie. He's going to be the <laughs> last one standing. Uh, all right, well, I feel like we're rambling a little bit. We are. So with that, we will see you in two weeks. Yes, um, we will look forward to seeing you again uh, in a couple of weeks. As always, feel free to drop us a note anytime. We do love hearing from you. Um, yeah. 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 We're going to get completely and we'll be much better next or two weeks. Sorry. All right. So with that, night all. Hope you stay out on tour soon. Yep. Night.